us knew. And good morning. Welcome to The Old School, a very intellectually edifying podcast dealing with the issues facing education today and occasionally some um, some solutions. If we, we could be so bold as to offer them, my name is Ross Miller along with Dr. Stephen Bourgeois. Good morning, Dr. Bourgeois. Good morning. I almost call you Dr. Miller, but Mr. Miller, Herr Miller, as we sometimes say. I feel like a doctor sometimes. Um, yeah, you could get an honorary or, or who knows. I could do that. If this podcast gets big enough, maybe we get an honorary doctorate. I don't have to actually do one. Well, we have a, as I've said before, a, a small but loyal audience. They're very, very valued to us. So what are we doing today? What are you doing? Um, I don't know. We're baseball we... later, though, aren't we? There's something about baseball that we wanted to discuss, and I can't remember what it was. It has to do with suffering. Yeah, what, baseball and suffering. Is that? And how did we get there? Because we were just talking about that, and I've totally forgotten the connection. Well, well, I tell you how you don't get there. You don't get there by saying, you know what, I'm going to be a baseball fan. I think I'll root for the Yankees. That's what has. It's not how you get there. It's the idea of suffering with a team. Okay. And you suffer in many small and measurable ways. You know, not just the team losing. But say not being able to get a foul ball until you're 48, 49 years old. Okay, that was it. So you yes. you told that story to me that you finally got a foul ball. Was it in? It was in here in our local yeah, stadium, it was in Texas and, Rangers. Yes. And you assaulted a, a young kid to get it. Did Is that what ass- happened? No, I didn't assault a young kid. Well, you took Although that. I I will say though, this whole thing about giving a ball over to a kid, I reject that out of hand. Because that kid needs to suffer, just like I suffered for 48 years not getting a foul ball. That kid needs to learn that life is not all about getting what you want. There's suffering involved. So you told the kid that or the parents as they were wondering why. I didn't tell anybody that. There was no kid near where I got the foul ball. I just happened to have my cat-like reflexes and I got the ball. I always said that if I would not chase for a foul ball, I'm not going to fight for a foul ball. This thing is like three bucks at an academy. I'm not going to fight for a ball. But if it comes to me, I ain't giving it to a kid. That kid needs to learn. <laughs> I'm not going to come. I'm just going to let that sit into the listen. Yeah. To this. <clears throat> That's Ross Miller, everybody. Part of my education philosophy, by the way. <laughs> it is. Well, we're, we're going to connect that because we're we're talking about not pain and suffering intentionally, but but um, pushing kids, students specifically, to failure, and that's going to be our topic. Um, and and we we have a guest. It's our first oh, time. Cow, we got a guest. I know. Um, he just jumped in on the Zoom, and here he is. Um, but he's a a friend of mine. We've worked together. Um, actually, the three of us have worked together. We may not all know it uh, for yeah. the same organizations. Kind of interesting. Um, but it's a, a pleasure to introduce um, Chris Stevens, uh, who is a head of school in Kansas. Uh, Chris, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, excellent. Well, wh- why don't you start out by just giving us a little background about you know what what you're doing right now about your current school, and uh, and then I think Ross is going to ask a question to get us into our topic. So I'm in Salina, Kansas, at Cornerstone Classical School. And uh, this school is six years old. Uh, There were a bunch of parents who uh, wanted a private uh, Christian school option in uh, this town of about 50,000. And uh, they, uh, I don't think they necessarily knew a lot about education, but they visited around and they happened to visit another classical school. And they saw some uh, seventh graders talking about Plato 
you know, probably the uh, the credo or the apology or the fado, one of those three probably. And uh, they said, that's what we want. And uh, not knowing much more than that about classical education, uh, they decided to start a classical school. And uh, they had 48 students that first year, preschool through grade six. And uh, started, they found a headmaster who'd been, been at a, uh, retired from, from public ed. And that first year they started advertising for a headmaster who knew something about classical education. And uh, I, at the time, was working uh, uh, the same place you were, Dr. Burgess, uh, uh, but not in Texas, but uh, in another state and, and saw that ad for a headmaster and uh, never been to Kansas before I came here to interview and really liked the idea of a startup school something I could really put my fingerprints on and uh, a, a place where I could teach people uh, what what classical education is and, and what my vision for, for educating children is. And uh, so I've been here for five years. We just finished our, our sixth, of course, with 100 students, preschool three through grade 11. Wow. Well, with the... Um... So given your experience, I'm wondering what what brought you to classical education? I mean, is, you know, because we, we've been talking about at different times, like different models and how people approach education and they do it in various ways. And some some creative, some not so creative, or, you know, and it comes down to how effective things are, what have you. What was your path to like classical, the, to the classical model? Was it just the, the opportunity to be a headmaster? Was this an idea that it started to foment within you prior to? Yeah, so, so definitely unplanned. Uh, uh, I, I uh, went to St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, which is known as a great book school. It's in the classical tradition uh, and uh, enjoyed that. But I'm a fifth. I'm I'm a fifth kid out of eight, so I just sort of took whatever came to me. It wasn't very picky, and 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 for better or for worse, that's kind of how I chose my college. And uh, my parents liked it. They said we like this. You should go here. So I went there, and uh, then moved to Texas for grad school. And uh, uh, after that, started working in Dallas public schools, and uh, didn't really like it. Uh, and saw an opportunity for a head of middle school at a classical school in Dallas and applied and, and received that position. And that was really my first exposure to classical education at, at the grade school level, middle school level. And it just made sense to me. I, I can remember early on uh, in that experience, watching a video from these people who run a Charlotte Mason school in Fredericksburg, Texas. And they said, they're talking about motivating students. And they said, what you draw them with is what you draw them to. And my experience working with children in both church and in education had been that, that you draw them with something other than what you want them to love, like candy or extra recess or whatever it might be. And, and, what they said made a lot of sense to me. And it, and it, and it, it dawned on me that, that that's kind of how you train a dog. Uh, you, you have the little bit of the little snack and the dog does the, 
paw shake or the stand on its back legs or whatever. And then, then you give them the uh, snack and they, they learn to love, they don't love doing the paw shake. Uh, uh, they like the snack and, and it, it, uh, from that point on, uh, um, it made a lot of sense to me to, 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 to think of education in a different way that it's about changing children and not changing education and uh, that, that children need to change. If they don't like math, it's their problem, not math's problem. If they don't like history. It's not a problem with history. These things are, are great gifts. People spend their lives for, for, for millennia. They've spent their lives studying these things. And then we think we need to take a child and, and, uh, uh, entice them to study history or math or science with extra recess, well, you've just made a mockery of, of one of the greatest gifts uh, uh, to mankind, uh, which is, would be the academic disciplines, which, which make life so much better. And so, so the school I was at, the classical school I was at, was unique in that they really thought that way about motivation. And, uh, and so I don't know if all classical schools do, uh, but, but that made a, a lot of sense to me. And, uh, the, and I suppose the classical emphasis on uh, having children memorize because they're good at it and they like to know, know things. And so that's what classical schools do with elementary children. They have them memorize and, and they can memorize a heck of a lot. And, and so those, those things made a lot of sense to me. And that uh, um, really was my entry into classical ed at that school and, and motivation and, and the content. Uh, but probably the motivation piece made, made more sense to me than anything else. Well, Dr. Bourgeois is going to talk to you a little bit about or is going to redirect us towards this kind of central theme we're going to deal with. But I'm just kind of curious. I have some experience with the state of Kansas as my lovely bride hails from the state. And so I've spent time there. Is there a large footprint of classical education in Kansas or are you kind of like a lone voice in the woods or? I think in this town, I'm a lone voice in the woods. So there, there's a Catholic school here and then uh, a, a public school, you might well, here we might call urban public school district. Uh, but I think there may be about seven classical schools in Kansas. Uh, so, so this is, I, I would consider what I'm doing here very much pioneering. Very good. It's, it's, it's fascinating that we, we invited you on here and we're both nodding while you're talking because you really, your view aligns with ours on, on motivational theory. But I think you said it better than we do. Um, and it's definitely so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, but right to, right to the point about, you know, what motivates you is, is the, the content itself. Um, but I, I want to go back to the time when you transitioned to the to the your current school because you know I mean I know we've had had conversations during that whole time and you know it wasn't easy at the beginning and and you had to do some conversion of, of you know to you know we're talking about parents teachers um, students with with a new standard and, a, and a, a new goal of education so you, you you taught not just those kids but a whole group can you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, so very few people knew much about classical ed here, and and uh, I had, and I know you all in a previous podcast have talked about in service, and 
so I've, I've sat through in services and uh, I just had um, an involuntary reaction. Sorry. I just had the, the word in service. I just, right. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Uh, Ross. Uh, so uh, I, I don't really do in service here. Uh, we do, we have some work days where teachers do work, but uh, if I have something, uh, if, if, uh, we have a phonogram program. When we when we brought that in, I had someone come in to train my teachers on it. So we did we do that kind of in service. But but I don't just figure out something to talk about for a day because I have to have an in service. I, I I think th in my experience that's sort of a waste of time and everybody hates it. So one of the things I I did is is I took a tradition that was here and that was that we're a Christian school, so we have prayer every morning. The teachers do, and uh, and I like to talk. So, so at 7.30 every morning, we all meet in the, in the hallway and we have prayer. Well, uh, I just take uh, five to 10 minutes most every morning to talk to my teachers. And I take that time to really put my spin on what's happening in the school. So if there's an issue, if a teacher is struggling with a student, I'll, I'll talk to them about that and, and really teach them the classical uh, um, and uh, whatever the motivational theory is called, I, I, I put that spin on what's happening. And, and I think that's very important. So over time, I started hearing teachers talk about problems and they sounded like me. And they would say, I, I sound like you. And I say, good. Uh, uh, but, but I think that's been far more effective for us than to simply make them sit for a lecture for, for three hours. Um, and so, so that was really helpful. One of the other things I, we did in that time is uh, you, Dr. Burgess, actually, I think both of you have written, co-written some articles, but uh, I've read those articles to my teachers. And I, I think you have a book that's about to be published and, and you sent me an advanced copy. And, and I read that book to them wow. in, during those mornings. Uh, and I, maybe not every word, but I, I hit the highlights and then I expanded on what you'd written and, and, ex, and sort of put it in our local context. Um, and so, so some of the things I've, I've said to my teachers um, come from, from your thinking in those journal articles or that book. Or uh, I think another really influential book for me has been uh, you talk about Postman, of course. Uh, we actually read half of that the second semester as a faculty together, discussed it at meetings. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, that was most of what we did at, at some of our faculty meetings was just discussion. We didn't really have, we tried not to have much of an agenda beyond that. But uh, um, the uh, A Failure of Nerve by Friedman, uh, uh, leadership in the age of the quick fix, and uh, and from that, one of the things I took from that, and I don't know if he says that this in in these words, but I tell my teachers, increase your tolerance for your students' pain, uh, and and so there's a, uh, I think teachers feel like they've got to make sure the students don't suffer. They 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 cross the line between themselves and the student. And so they, the students in pain, they feel that pain. And, and if they've had experience in a public school, they know that if they don't feel the pain of the student, the principal's gonna come along probably and say, you need to feel this pain as well. Uh, this has to be fixed. And I tell them, I say, uh, increase your tolerance for your student's pain so that you are able to let them suffer as individuals uh, so that they can fix what 
only they can fix. And if you if your pain if your tolerance for their pain is too low, they won't be able to learn what they need to learn. And uh, I tell them to to uh, I say teach fast enough so that your students have to work to keep up with you. Uh, that that a football coach is not going to let students run at their own pace. He he has to uh, he has to set the pace, and it's a pace at which most of his players are going to suffer. Uh, and and so we take a similar approach to the classroom that that uh, not that we want our students to suffer, but we want them to experience working hard in the classroom. And if and you cannot, I, I think that the, the a necessary condition for hard work in the classroom is an efficient pace. Uh, that this material is not going to be repeated. Uh, you've got to be attentive and and get to it. And uh, and so so those are the kind of things I would say on a on a rainy morning or a sunny morning, cold morning, just on a normal day of school. Uh, if if something comes up, we're dealing with something. We're a small school, so so we. We, there's very little that one person deals with that, that the rest of us don't at least know about. Uh, uh, that's that's kind of how I do in-service. I, I could, if I were in a public school, I could probably never get federal funding for doing it that way, <laughs> but I find that it works. Well, one of the things you were talking about, about the idea of a, the tolerance for student suffering. Now, now, we and this is something we both talked about, but you also suggested that it cannot be too low, you know, there's there because you don't want to unnecessarily suffer. If I if I understood your point correctly, so I would imagine that the toughest thing to teach or to instruct or to try to train is to know the line where the teacher then can step in, you know, and and so how do you how do you kind of instruct on how to make that determination? Where is the line, and how does the teacher recognize it? I think that's very hard. I, I I think one of the most difficult things a teacher has to learn is what what not to say, and and because uh, it's easy to say too much, mm. and and so there is an optimal amount of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to sound like a, a terrible headmaster. There is an optimal amount of suffering, uh, or you might just say effort, uh, right? Mm. I, I think effort might be another word. Uh, um, that that certainly the football player sweating it out on the field at practice is expending effort. Uh, so uh, I, I think one, it helps to be small. So my class size is max at 15. So we get to know our students pretty well. And, and, and I think teachers pretty quickly benchmark children, not intentionally, but they, they know when this child's having a good day, they know what they can do. And uh, and I and and then we've seen a lot of kids over the years. I mean, over time, you see a lot of students and 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 simply that repetition of, of students with most of them around the average gives you a pretty good idea of what a student can do. And and so I think it's something that's really hard to teach, I think. But I think teachers teachers have to talk about it. They have to go to the teacher who taught that child the year before and say, look, this is this is what I'm dealing with. It, what do you think about this? And we'll talk about it. But one of the things I think is so important is that you, you have to be able to fail in that process. The teacher has to be able to fail in that process. 
So, so to find that line, to find that point at which the child is failing and they can't help it. So you're, 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 you need to know where that is. And it's the most, it's, it's the same place for most students because obviously you know, most, the average is in the middle and that's where most of the people are. But, uh, but we, we, you, you have to be able to push that limit to, to figure out what the child can do. Cause of course you've got, you've got their innate ability and then you have the fact that they're a child, which means they're foolish and ignorant and, and, uh, and that has to change. And, and so uh, you, you have to be able to sort through the foolishness and the ignorance, which, which they have to slough off as they grow into adulthood and, and to be able to, slough that off, there has to be some suffering, some pain. And, and so teachers need to be allowed to, to, in a loving way, push their students and, and, and find that point at which that student is working hard and using their gifts efficiently. And for us, it's about stewardship. You, you've got to steward the gifts God has given you. You've, you've got to use them well. And uh, and that's why we do what we do. We want to help other people, and we can't do that if we're not if we're not stewarding our gifts well. So so, but that that's a hard line to find, I think. Uh, but I, I think within the community, with discussion, um, with, it, with faculty faculty gatherings where there's no agenda, that's where you figure that stuff out. Well, let me ask a, a more practical. We're talking theory a little bit, but. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of consulting with heads of school, and part of their job is to make, make sure that enrollment, um, they, they make money. And, and so you're also, you know, having to deal with parent education. And, and uh, how has that been? Because you could, you know, work yourself right out of a school, you know, if the, the standards are too high. And you're not. So how, how did you work with parent, parents to get that buy in so that you can actually do what you do? So we we measure homework and, and, and so we, we, we do have an idea of how much time students spend on, on work. And, uh, and then I think we also don't pretend that we're not experts. So I think teaching is one of the few professions where a parent has to go into a room with, or with a where the, where the professional, the teacher has to go into a room, perhaps with a principal and a parent where there's a problem and pretend they don't know what they're doing. And uh, we don't pretend we don't know what we're doing. Uh, we're not perfect. We have a lot to learn. We've used some of the surveys that, that uh, AHART Solutions provides, uh, Dr. Bourgeois. But uh, at the same time, uh, we, we don't pretend that we don't know what's going on or that we just started doing this yesterday. And, and so I, th I think that helps. I, I think parents like to know that, that they're at a place where their children are being taught by professionals uh, who, who act like it. Uh, so even down to the dress, we we dress professionally, uh, and and so uh, that that's an important part I think of of being helpful to people as experts. Uh, so we we uh, I, I interview every parent who comes in. We talk about some of these things. I talk about motivation. I tell them from the start before they're even admitted to the school. I, I tell them that we will not bribe their children. That we we will if their child comes up here and does not want to learn we will be fine with that uh, we will we might put them in the hall if they're disruptive uh, but we'll tell them that when they're ready to to obey to come on in and learn uh, so and and this usually happens with our younger students but they'll uh, they might try that 
and they'll get whatever work they missed will simply go home with them and the parent has to do it at home. And, and, uh, and that really works. Uh, they, they figure out, Oh, I, I prefer to do it in class. And, and so, uh, so we talked to parents for, at the very beginning at the front end, I'll be honest with you. This is something we're looking at as a board though, is, is more, uh, what can we do to better educate parents on, on, uh, uh, what what this means, classical education, what th this motivational theory means for their children. But I see parents a lot. I'm out every morning at pick up. I'm out at drop off. Uh, so so um, I, I think I, I I talk to parents a decent amount just through the course of a, a school day or a school week. Excellent, Ross. Say again. Yeah, go ahead, Ross. Well, no, I was just thinking about <clears throat> because the. You know, with with everything you do, everything a teacher does, everything that's done in a classroom, there's a conditioning that's taking place, whether you want it to or not. You know, no matter which direction it is, there's a conditioning taking place. I wonder if there is a point where a kid used to like a public school environment is not sullied too much, you know, but but perhaps is is too far conditioned to go into a kind of a classical environment, or I would imagine maybe it's a kind maybe it's a case by case basis where you look at a kid who is just wired differently and maybe is more in tune to this kind of instruction, or can there be a transition, a kind of a debrief from the public school model to a kind of a classical model? Well, I think so. And, and it is case by case. Uh, and I would say that, that, it's worth a try, but I believe in school choice. The choice to not come to my school is just as important as the choice to come here. And I have a great board who, who went, we've had some families that have left and not liked us. And, uh, and, and some of those have come back and said, actually, we do like you, we wanna come back. But because my board is supportive, we're simply allowed to be who we are. And that makes it very easy for people to choose whether or not they wanna be here. So if we were, were mushy and and trying to please everybody, we we acted like we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, I think it'd be hard to decide if you wanted to be here because we're 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 too accommodating. So we're we're simply allowed to be who who we are, and and people then have a I think a fairly easy time of deciding whether or not this is for them. Uh, so so that's I think one piece. And uh, now I lost my train of thought. Ask your question again. <laughs> no, I just talking about the idea of at what point is, oh, is yes, there a yeah, point where. Yeah. So I, I will, I think I'll answer that by telling a story. Uh, and it's definitely harder for older students. I'll say that. I, th I think the, the, we habituate our students to working hard. So they, they do not know what it's like to come into a classroom and play. They know, you, you it's like when you turn the TV on, you know, you're going to be entertained. When they come into the classroom, they know they're going to work. And so, so that's habituated and that takes time. And so we, we have students even in elementary who will come in and they have to learn how to be attentive. That's probably, uh, it's one of the, the, the bigger, it's not an issue because they figure it out, but, but one of the things that, that our new students more universally have to figure out. So we, when we do spelling, for example, the teacher calls the word out, they do the phonogram thing, and the teacher writes it on on the uh, the projector, and the students have to put have to participate and put that word in their spelling notebook. Well, we never check that spelling notebook, so so it's 
usually a new student after a couple of weeks, the parent will come to the teacher and say, you're marking. So they have to do markings. It's not just spelling the word right, but they have to put all these marks on it. And, and it's not correct if, if it's simply spelled correct. It's correct if it's spelled correctly and they put all the markings on this, this word. So we'll have a parent come in and say, my child keeps getting this word wrong and uh, it's exactly what's written in their notebook. And, and that you talked about the hidden uh, uh, enculturation in the classroom. Well, we're not just teaching spelling, we're teaching attentiveness. That child did not pay attention when they put that word down. And, and so we figure out very quickly who has attention issues because we have a standard. Uh, and, and so, but they, the students figure out, oh, I have to be attentive. And they learn that pretty quickly. The most drastic example I have is a child who came into the school and uh, his old teacher, uh, um, it was kindergarten. His, he was in kindergarten before he came here and uh, he had a squishy ball and he also had flexible seating and he's not, wasn't a bad child, but he moved a lot and he would touch people and all this touching and movement was disruptive, not just for him, but for the rest of his class. And so he had this squishy ball so he could squeeze that squishy ball instead of touching people. And, uh, and then he had flexible seating, I guess, because he couldn't sit still. I don't know. But, uh, but he had a pretty big file. And, uh, and so uh, I interview them and I, I talked to the teacher and I said to the teacher, can he help this? And the teacher said, well, no, he can't. Well, he, he had, and, and this was a respected teacher, but it's just a different approach and also bigger class size, which I believe makes a difference. Uh, so, but it's, a, it's not good for the child if at kindergarten, you're saying they can't help it. Uh, uh, I, I, that's the last thing I say about a student. I'll endure a lot of student failure before I say the child can't help it. Because if they can't help it, then it can't change. And, and so anyway, uh, I asked the teacher, can he help it? No, he can't. So she had created this environment where he had to have the squishy ball and he had to have flexible seating where, where in my understanding of flexible seating is that you can lie on the floor, you can sit on a wiggly chair, you can stand. There are all these different ways you can sit. Uh, all, most of them mean that you learn less than what you would learn if you were just seated like everybody else in the room. So anyway, uh, uh, I, I talk to people who go to church with them and, and they say, well, he sits still at church. I know well, church is more boring than school. So if he can sit at church, he can sit at school. And then someone said, well, but his dad, he rubs his back, gives him this physical feedback to keep him still. And I just said, well, that anyway. That's uh, probably not going to happen. That's probably not helpful in a school environment. So, right. so uh <laughs> I like helping people and I like taking risks. I, I, uh, if you're not risking failure, you're probably not doing what you should be doing. So you can't succeed if you cannot also fail. Like people talk all about success at school. Well, if you're gonna talk about success, then failure has to be on the table in a real way, right? right? So, so, uh, so I, I, I believe that. And, uh, and so I'm gonna take a risk on this child. And, and I had the information that I thought, you know, I don't think he was born. He might struggle with this more than other people. And he may have been born with that struggle. But but if he can sit still in church, I'm going to go for this. And the other thing his parents said that was really interesting. They said, we used to say, clean your room. And he would clean his room. And then we sent him to school. 
And he's, and we would say, clean your room. And he'd say, what am I going to get for it? And they didn't like that. And uh, I thought, wow, these, these, he might have a squishy ball and flexible seating at his old school, but I want these people in here. I want to, I want to try this. I might fail, but I'm going to go for it. And uh, so we, we took him and uh, he sat in that desk and, and uh, he had to learn attentiveness, which is what every, every other new student had to learn. But I could give you, I could have given you his file that said he has a squishy ball and a wiggly chair. And I could have blacked out his name and sent you to look for him. And you wouldn't have been able to find him on day one in my school. And, uh, and so, yes, students can make that transition. Uh, and I think, it, I think boys love it. I have more boys at this school than girls. And, uh, and they, boys especially, want to mean something. They don't like walking into a room and not changing that room. And I think that's why a lot of them are bad. Mm. So I say to them, you know, you come in this room, you make a difference. You matter. You can, you matter so much as a matter of fact that you can fail and I will let you fail by your actions. And, and I think boys tune into that and they take that as a challenge and they say, Oh, it's on me. And so, uh, so he had the opportunity to, we, we weren't going to, we didn't, we don't do wiggly chairs here. We don't do squishy balls. And, uh, and, and he got in that seat and he saw, well, everybody else is sitting and, uh, I'm, so I'm going to sit and, uh, and then he realized very quickly that this was on him, that no one's going to swoop in to rescue him. Uh, and, and so, uh, I mean, that was, I was kind of amazed by that, but, but it's definitely possible. And I think boys respond well, uh, when they know that their decisions matter. And so in my experience in public school, boys could do all sorts of things that they're not supposed to do in a classroom and they still pass. And in my mind, that's just teaching the boy that he doesn't matter, which is about the worst thing you can teach him. Uh, they, they need to be taught that they matter. And one of the ways that boys especially learn that they matter is uh, by being able to fail based on choices they make, right? I mean, they, they're, if there's a button that can be pushed they're going to push it to find out what happens. And they're not, they probably won't ask somebody what it does. They're just going to push it and then they'll react to it. And so I think school for boys, this, your motivational theory that y'all talk about, I think it's, it's good for everybody, but I think it's especially good for boys. Well, Chris, you've given us, I mean, I'm making a little list here. Of, you know, you mentioned boredom. I mean, I was thinking about praise and just, we have a lot to talk about. And uh, five other good. podcasts, at least, I think. You oh, know, so. I, I think we have, we have a lot of uh, territory to cover. Um, so we are going to close, but I, I wanted to ask just a personal question. I saw on your your information on, on the website, and you mentioned Annapolis. Did you grow up in, in, in uh, Maryland? I did not. I grew up north of the Mason-Dixon line in uh, Pennsylvania, near, near Reading. Okay. And, uh, I went to... I, I did, uh, people say for better, for worse. I think for worse, lots of different schools. I, I was went to public school. I went to Christian school and uh, um, then my family ran out of funding for that. So I, I went to public school for a couple months in grade six, then back to Christian school in grade six. I was homeschooled for a couple of years. And then I went to all boys boarding school for my last two years. Had no idea what I was doing there. I had no idea how to be a student. And uh, and then, uh, thankfully, uh, 
through through scholarship opportunity, went to St. John's in Annapolis and absolutely loved that. Wonderful. Well, I was I, I was thinking, you know, that because Ross has he grew up in Baltimore, and I thought you you, oh, all, yeah. you all seem to agree on everything. I wonder if you're like unlost <laughs> brothers or something. I don't know. I don't that's know. A, I'm not an a, Orioles. Are you an Orioles fan? Well, of course, yes. But okay. you know, you know, the joke though is that you know Baltimore and Annapolis, you know, it's only 35 minutes apart, but it might as well be you know 20 years apart. You know, just <laughs> there's just two completely different mindsets in Maryland between. Baltimore North and then Baltimore South, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's night and day, you know, that's a, uh, that's a different scene down in the capital. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they say, hi, hon. Isn't that Baltimore? Yeah, hi, hi, hey, hon. Yeah. How you doing? But, you know, I had to get rid of that when I moved because okay. strangely enough, people outside of Maryland don't appreciate being called hun. <laughs> no, they, they wouldn't. <laughs> Well, yes, uh, it, was, well, it, was, it was a learning curve for me when I left yeah. the great state of Maryland. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad you've become more civilized as you've uh, gotten that. much, much older now. Um, well, this has been fun. Um, Mr. Stevens, thank you uh, for being with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it, it's been a blast. And um, Ross, I don't know if it's going to be the two of us together next time or we'll bring somebody else to mix it up. But uh, your interviewing skills are you're, you're, are above average, I would say. <laughs> well, you know, that classical education kind of makes you wonder. It's like, hey, he's a classical school. He he probably knows how to count with Roman numerals. You know, that's you know, that's the you know, I think well, a lot of people think of classical education, they just you know, they think classical, they think Rome, they think Greece or what have you, but you know, maybe those folks had it right in the first place. Maybe we need to change to the metric system and then to the Roman numerals or something like that, or so that was your takeaway from all this is the <laughs> Roman numerals. Um, well, no, it's just one of those. In, it's just one of those inappropriate questions that may that pops in your head amidst all the more highfalutin questions. You're sitting there going, "I wonder if you can count to like a thousand in Roman numerals." I'm not taking any quizzes. <laughs> Wait, no, t- no testing. We, you know, we hate tests. Uh, all right. Well, we're gonna call it good. So I'm gonna say um, goodbye to Mr. Stevens. Goodbye, Mr. Goodbye to Mr. Miller. Bye, Mr. Miller. All right. So long, Dr. Bourgeois. Yes. All right. Uh, thanks again. I'm going to pause this.